Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. question. If you were to say to someone the words, I am a Christian, what do you mean by that? Like, what is it exactly that you are claiming that you are defining yourself to be with those words? Does I am a Christian mean I believe in Jesus? Does it mean I go to church? That I prayed a prayer at one point in my life to invite Jesus into my heart? Does it mean that I try to live a pretty good life and be a good person and love God, love others? How do we define the term Christian? Maybe a better question for us to ask is, is my definition of the term Christian the same definition Jesus would give? The passage we're going to study today, in it Jesus uh, offers us a definition for what it truly means to be a Christian. Except he doesn't actually use that term Christian. That's a phrase, that's a word that's only used three times in the New Testament. Instead, he uses a word that is used 269 times in the New Testament. And that's the word disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Grab your Bible, open your Bible app, and find Luke chapter 14. During this Jesus is series, we've been bunkered down in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And that's where we'll be today as well. And I realize for some of you, some of you joining us live on on one of our five campuses across the East Bay, some of you guys watching online, you may not actually define yourself as a Christian. And if that's you, that's totally okay. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you're engaging with our community. I hope you have a space or a person where you can be asking questions and you can kind of be wrestling through what all of this faith stuff really means. And if that's you, my hope for you is that today would bring clarity when it comes to what being a Christian actually means so that you could decide if that's something you even want for yourself or not. And my hope for those of us who would already define ourselves as Christian is that we would spend some time today reflecting on our life and our understanding of the term and how well that matches up with Jesus's. So let's dive in. Look at Luke 14. We're going to start reading in verse 25. Luke writes, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Talk about getting straight to the point, right? I mean, Jesus, he is being blunt, direct. 
Straight shooter. He's telling it like it is. He's holding nothing back. A couple weeks ago, I took the plunge and I officially became a minivan mom. Yeah, judge me all you want, okay? But I love it. I'm never going back. It has been fantastic. Automatic sliding doors, they're the greatest invention of all time, okay? Especially when you have two little kids, like it's been a game changer. And when Garrett and I, we first started looking uh, for a minivan, we set our budget for how much we wanted to spend, and then I started looking at cars, at vans within that price range. However, I quickly realized that the price listed online, right, the price on that pretty sticker on the windshield, that was not actually the price I was going to end up paying, was it? Why? Because that price, it doesn't include any of the fine print, right? It doesn't include any of the sales tax or the registration, the title tra transfer, the licensing fees, all of the things that they don't tell you about until you're actually committed to buying the car. And so when we would go to a dealer and we'd look at a van before we decided whether or not we wanted to buy it, I would ask, hey, what is my out-the-door price going to be? I don't care about what you had listed online and how great of a deal that was. I don't care about what the sticker on the windshield says. Tell me my out-the-door price because I want to know exactly what it is I'm committing to, right? I want to I know up front precisely what this is going to cost me. Tell me the cost. And as intense as Jesus' words here in Luke 14, as they sound, as direct as they are, I actually appreciate that he's being up front. He doesn't turn to the crowds and say, hey, everyone, I can offer you eternal life. And then he like turns to his disciples and he's like, but you know, it's going to be required carrying a cross and difficulties once you sign up. No, he, he says, hey, I'm not going to hide the cost. I'll tell you from the get-go, this is what it's going to require. And he says, but you got to realize, these things I'm going to tell you, they're for anyone, for everyone who wants to follow me. Isn't it true we sometimes think there's like two standards of Christians, right? There's like the regular Christians who like they believe and they go to church and they pray when things get tough. But then there's like the devoted Christians, right? They're like super weird and really intense, and they like quote scripture for everything. Like, hey, do you need, you need me to pick up some bread at the store? No, I, I live on the bread of life, Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're like, that doesn't answer. So you don't want bread? It's sourdough. It's really good. But Jesus says, actually, that's, that's not true. There's not two, two types of Christians. There's only, there's only one standard for being my disciple. You're either all in or you're not. From this passage, we see three things that Jesus tells us are for anyone who wants to follow him. And so I want to spend our time together unpacking those three things. Here's the first. The first thing that Jesus tells us is discipleship involves establishing a new priority. Establishing a new priority. Look back at verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. They can't be my follower. I don't know about you, but I read that, and my first thought is, okay, Jesus, you're like a little absurd here. You ever read the Bible, and you're like, come on, Jesus, I think he like forgot who he's talking to. You're like, if I don't hate my father and my, my mother, my family, the people who are, who are most important to me in this entire world, if I don't hate them, I can't be your disciple? Like, that's insane. 
Some of you guys are thinking, well, I already hate my mom and dad, so that doesn't sound that bad. Why would Jesus choose the word hate here? Think about it. This is the same guy who elsewhere told his followers, love your enemies. This is the same Jesus who on the cross, moments before he's about to die, he says of those who crucified him, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They know not what they do. So how could this be the guy who's telling us to hate our family? Well, there's actually two meanings to this word hate. The first uh, meaning is to hate actively, right? This is a volatile, volatile, a hostile hatred. It's the type of hatred that I feel anytime I'm stuck in traffic on the freeway, especially when I'm coming out of downtown San Francisco because I'm already stressed out from being in that place. But there's another meaning. And the second meaning to hate, it, it means hate comparatively. This means to prefer one thing to the other. For example, I love pie, any type of pie, pumpkin pie, apple pie, boysenberry pie. I don't know if you've had it. It's really good. Banana cream pie, chocolate cream pie, Oreo cream pie, anything that involves cream in the word, I'm like, I'm in. But as much as I love pie, if you offer me a slice of freshly baked chocolate chip pecan pie with a scoop of vanilla ice cream on top, the love I have for that slice of dessert. It is so great. It is so extravagant. It makes my love for all other pie look like hatred. Anyone else excited for Thanksgiving? I'm like already there. I'm like, come on, give me all the pie. So here Jesus, he's not asking us to literally hate someone or something. However, he is asking us to prefer him compared to the other people, the things that we hold most dear in this life. Jesus, he's challenging his listeners. Hey, if you truly want to follow me, the things that are most valuable to you, they have to come second. I'm your first love. And this is why discipleship, it requires us to establish a new priority. And I think, okay, well, that, okay, that sounds good. That sounds right. Like you died on the cross for my sins, so the least I could do is make you my number one priority in life. But what does that actually mean? Does it mean I just like sit down and write a new priorities list? Like number one, God, number two, family, number three, is it work, friends? I don't know. I guess it depends on how much you like your job. But like, is that all he's talking about? How do we actually gauge whether or not we're doing this? How do, how do we know if we've established Jesus as our number one priority? Like practically, what would it look like in our day-to-day -day life to, to, to know that I love Jesus above all else? Well, it actually doesn't have to be a mystery. Jesus himself, he gives us the answer. John 14, he says it over and over and over and over again. Here's the answer Jesus gives. If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Jesus, he spells it out very, very clearly. Love, it goes hand in hand with obedience. Here's the problem, though. So many Christians today, we have completely severed loving Jesus from obeying him. We think they're two completely separate things. 
A.W. Tozer, he was one of the greatest American pastors, authors, spiritual mentors of the 20th century. And he said that a notable heresy throughout evangelical Christian circles is is the widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior. And that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. He goes on to say that salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. Salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. Let me illustrate it this way. As you know, my name is Becky Fitch. Let's suppose someone invited me over to their home for dinner, and, and when I arrive, they, they open the door and they welcome me in and they say, hey, hey, come on in, Becky, but stay out, Fitch. Right? First I would be like, wait, what did you say? No, I'm just kidding. That would create a problem, wouldn't it? Because I'm all Becky, but I'm also all Fitch. It's not like the top half is Becky and the bottom half is Fitch, or I could just pick and choose. No, I, if, if you won't have Fitch, you can't have Becky. Right? If, if, if Fitch has to stay out, I can't come in at all. To say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. Answer my prayers. Jesus, I, I want the assurance of, of knowing that I believe in you and I'm going to go to heaven one day and just spend eternity with you. But Jesus, don't be the leader of my life. Don't be the absolute focal point of every area of my life. Don't be my number one priority. Don't be my first love. That would be like saying, hey, Jesus, come in, Savior, but stay out, Lord. How could he come in at all? He's all Savior, but he's also all Lord. In fact, he's Savior because he's Lord. And he's Lord because he's Savior. They go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. And so when Jesus says, hey, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate their father, mother, spouse, children, brother, sister, they can't be my disciple. He's not saying we have to hate our loved ones or our things or even ourselves in order to follow him. But he is absolutely saying that we have to set him as our new priority, our highest value, our greatest love. Why would we say, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I accept your salvation. You're my savior. But then we wouldn't trust him to be the Lord of our lives. He is Lord and he is the one who deserves to direct our lives. So let's reflect on this for a minute. For anyone who would call themselves a Christian, where are we at with this? Ask yourself that. Where am I at with this? Do, do you have trouble making Jesus your first priority, your greatest love in life? Do you love him with just your words, or, or does it actually show through your obedience? If I want to be honest, this is the most difficult one for me. Out of the three we'll take a look at today, because I love being in control of my own life. I'm pretty good at it. 
I'm confident in my capabilities in the plan that I come up with. And so that I, I want to do whatever I think is best. That becomes first priority. And Jesus would say, hey, are you, are you really following me then? I want to be more than your, your personal assistant. I want to be your number one. I want to be the Lord of your life. This isn't about Jesus following us. This is about us following him. Discipleship, it involves establishing a new priority. Here's the second thing. It also involves embracing a new identity. Embracing a new identity. After Jesus says, hey, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers, sisters, he then says, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, the word life here, it's not the word for physical life. That's the Greek word bios. It's where we get our word biology from. But that's not the word used here. The word used here for life is the Greek word psyche. It means soul or the inner self. Jesus, he's talking about the psychological life, our inner life. And here's what he's saying. It's actually pretty radical. Jesus is saying, hey, your old way of having an identity, your, your old way of gaining a sense of self, the things or the people that you turn to in order to gain your self-worth, your value, all of that, it's got to go. It's got to go. In Luke 9, Jesus says it like this. For whoever wants to save their life, again, that's the word psyche, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And yet lose or forfeit their very soul? We have a modern Western obsession with finding ourselves, right? I mean, we're told this is the main thing we're supposed to do in life. You just need to find yourself. You just need to discover who you are. We find our deepest desires and then, and then we fulfill them. We figure out what we really want, who we really are, and then we go and do it. There's a lot of problems with this though, isn't there? I mean, for starters, some of our deepest desires, they conflict with one another. So how do we know which one's actually the deepest? Which one we should go with? What if we make the wrong decision? Or what happens when we completely build our life on our deepest desire and then 10 years go by and our deepest desire has changed? Everything we just spent the last decade building our entire life on, it comes crashing down. We thought, oh, this, this is the thing. This is the thing that's going to bring me that happiness and that joy and that fulfillment in life. And so we aim for it and we strive for it. And then we get it. And then what? Jesus, he's saying, if you build your identity on anything or anyone in this world, on anything that the world tells you is what you should build your identity on, you have to realize it's radically unstable. You will end up forfeiting your very self. Think about that. The thing we think will make us most ourselves will actually be the thing that causes us to lose our very self. But we still fall into this trap time and time again, don't we? It's just, it's too easy. Man, it's too tempting. We build our identity on the basis of our job title or our income level, how many degrees we have, our success, our accomplishments, our marital status. 
We build our identity on our kids and their success and their achievements. We build our identity on the basis of other people's opinions of us, their acceptance of us, their rejection of us, on our own opinion of ourselves. Honestly, I think this is why one of the main reasons we see so much depression and anxiety in our society is because we've spent our lives building our identity on the basis of these things, and then eventually what happens? Right? They fail. They let us down, and the result ends up being an identity crisis. Not that we're just unhappy, not that we're just a little sad. No, it feels like our, our, our very self is falling apart. Because it is. And Jesus says, you'll never gain a stable identity by basing it on the things that this world tells you, defines you. But if you base your life on me, on who I am, on, on what I have done for you, not on your career, not on your family, not on having a nice house. No, if you base it on me, finally, then you'll have an identity that is stable. When you can't lose, you'll have a true self. You'll have a real self because you were created. You were built to know me. You weren't created to find yourself. You were created to find me. You'll become more yourself the more that you know me. What is this new identity that Jesus has for us? Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Carry your cross. That's your new identity. Carry your cross. Other translations say, take up your cross. What does he mean by that? For us uh, today, the cross is the most recognizable symbol of our faith, isn't it? But back then, for those who were listening to Jesus speak these words for the very first time, you have to realize they lived within the Roman Empire. The cross at that time was the most prevalent form of capital punishment. They saw it all the time. Not on little rosaries or pictures on the wall, but real crucifixions. Criminals dying on a cross. And so when Jesus says, carry your cross, they knew it could only mean one thing. Not take up your burden. Carry the hard things in life. No, they knew it could only mean to put yourself in the place of a condemned criminal. Just imagine how shocking of a statement this would have been to hear. I mean, can you actually like picture in your mind these large crowds that are gathered around Jesus and he says, if you don't carry your cross, you can't be my disciple Imagine the eyes widening, the mouths that are, are dropping, the, the murmuring that undoubtedly was starting at this point, the anger that is building up in people. Who does this guy think he is? I mean, the disciples for sure had to be going, Jesus, come on, like the hate your family thing, that was bad enough, but seriously, like stop talking. Imagine if a candidate running for office today said, hey, come with me, join my campaign. Let's all strap ourselves into the electric chair and let's go. 
Why have we heard that? We'd look and be like, that person's a lunatic. I am never voting for them. Who wrote their campaign speech? That is an awful. That person should be fired. I could have done a better job than that. This is a shocking statement. It's an offensive statement. Because carrying your cross, it had permanence to it. When they saw someone carrying their cross, they knew that was the absolute last thing that person would ever do. No one walked around with a cross and then decided, you know what, this isn't really working for me. I think I'm going to set it down. I'll go do something else. No, like a person under a cross, they were under arrest. Jesus, he's saying, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you need to realize that you are no longer your own person. You don't get to live life however you want to. You are someone who is under arrest. Following me, it's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require pain. There will be hardship. There will be difficulty. This is why Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be completely upfront for you and tell you what this is going to mean. It means you're going to have to carry your cross. Church, this is hard. If anyone ever told you following Jesus meant that life would be easy and perfect, nothing but like butterflies and rainbows and puppies, like they lied. They straight up lied to you or they were gravely misinformed. Because all of this, it is so counter-cultural. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb. The predominant theme our culture tells us each and every single day is that life is all about you. Life is about your success, your happiness, your fulfillment, doing whatever it is that you feel like, whatever it is that you think is best so that you can create the greatest life possible for you. But Jesus, he says, no. That's all wrong. It's actually completely opposite. That's not what's going to lead to the most fulfilling and meaningful life. He says, following me, that will lead to the most fulfilling and meaningful life. But you have to realize following me, it's going to require you to carry your cross, to put yourself in the place of a condemned criminal. I know some of you guys are thinking, Becky, you're not doing a very good job convincing us to want to follow Jesus. I actually, I was a Christian, but I think I'm changing my mind now. I'd agree with you. I can't get up here and like sugarcoat things though. Not when Jesus is being as direct as he is. He's not sugarcoating things. I can't get up here and tell you, you know what? It'll be the easiest decision you ever make. Life will be perfectly amazing from this day forward. It's hard. It will by no means be the easiest decision you ever make. But you know what? I wholeheartedly believe with every fiber of my being, it will be the best decision you ever make. It has absolutely been the best decision I've ever made. Yes, it's been hard. It's been so, so worth it. Here's one reason why. There is actually an entirely different, deeper meaning that Jesus is communicating here to us when he tells us to carry your cross. And in order to understand this different meaning, this deeper meaning, we have to ask ourselves a critical question. Here's the question. If carrying your cross means putting yourself in the place of a condemned criminal, what condemned criminal would that be? 
Like, who exactly are we supposed to be identifying ourselves with? It's not a trick question. The answer is Jesus. You're in church. The answer is always Jesus, okay? When Jesus says, carry your cross or you cannot be my disciple, he is saying that the essence of discipleship is to realize that when I died, you died. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Colossians chapter 3, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died. Turn to the person next to you and say, you died. You died. The Bible says over and over again that the minute you believe in Jesus Christ, the moment you choose to follow him, you died on the cross with him. It says that you were buried in the grave with him and you were raised to new life with him. That sounds weird, right? Like, that's a little morbid. What does that mean? What's the point? No wonder people think Christians are weird. Like, I died? I'm not dead? Here's what that means. I hope you're listening. I don't want you to miss this. What that means is that God looks at you right now as if you have paid all the penalty for every ounce of your sin. Every mistake, every wrong, every failure you've ever made, every wrong you ever will make in the future, you've already paid the price. If you're someone who believes in Jesus and you start to beat yourself up because of your sin, you, you, start to feel, you start to feel shame and guilt and you think, man, why? Why do I keep doing this over and over again? And so you just beat yourself up again and again. Well, don't. Stop it. Why? Because as far as God is concerned... He sees you as if you've already been beaten. You've already been whipped. You've already been flogged. You've already been crowned with thorns. You've already been spit on, been nailed to a cross. You have paid it all. Your life is hidden in God with Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your past. He doesn't see your mistakes, your failures, your, your shortcomings, the things that he wishes you could be or one day might be. No, all he sees is Jesus. He sees perfection. He sees holiness. He sees what Jesus has done for you. Therefore, to carry your cross, to put yourself in the place of this specific condemned criminal. It means to wake up each and every single day and remind yourself of who you are in Christ. You remind yourself that I have died. The Apostle Paul says, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Becky has died. It's no longer Becky who lives. And you know what? That's actually a really good thing. It's a really freeing thing. Because it means that no matter where I go, no matter who I'm with, no matter what I'm doing every single day of my life, I have absolutely nothing to prove. 
have nothing to prove to anyone. I have nothing to prove to myself. I am already unconditionally loved. I am already fully accepted, completely forgiven, utterly made new. And the incredible, miraculous thing, it doesn't make sense, it almost seems opposite, but this is how Jesus works. The miraculous thing is that when I surrendered my identity, when I allowed Becky to die so that Christ could live through me, I actually became more alive than I've ever been. When I allowed Becky to die so that Christ could live through me, I actually became more myself. I became more Becky than I've ever been. And so, yes, I carry my cross, and it requires sacrifice, and it is hard, and it is painful, and it is difficult at times, but I carry it out of the fullness of knowing what Christ has done for me there on that very cross and the victory, the new life that I have as a result. Carrying my cross, it means that I can live out of emotional wealth because I know my position. I know my standing in Christ. I know who I am in Christ. Therefore, you know what? I don't care if I get snubbed. I don't care if I get passed over for that job. I don't care if I get rejected by that person or badmouthed by that person or gossiped about by those people because I know that's not the most important thing in the world. Yeah, it sucks. Yes, it hurts but it doesn't break me. It doesn't cause my world to come crashing down because I've embraced a new identity that is not founded in those things. It is founded in Christ. I'm carrying my cross, but really it just means I'm living in the shadow of his. Someone better give me an amen. Come on. Church, this is good news. Man, there's hope here. There's peace in that. There's contentment in that. There's joy in that. This is good news. I mean, following Jesus, it may be the hardest thing you ever do, but it is the best. We carry our own crosses. Can I ask you, what are you placing your identity in? Man, there's so many things. It's so tempting. It's so easy to fall for those traps and to, and to say my worth, my significance, my value, my identity, it's founded in this. But man, it's going to cost us our very self. How might our life look different if we actually found our identity in Christ instead? Here's the third thing. Discipleship, it involves establishing a new priority, embracing a new identity, and expressing a new purpose. Expressing a new purpose. After Jesus says in verse 27, hey, whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me, they can't be my disciple. He then spends the next six verses giving two illustrations. The first he says is, hey, if you want to build a tower, you first, you got to sit down and, and you got to figure out how much money you have, if you actually have enough to complete the project. You don't want to get halfway through and then have to abandon it. Likewise, he says, the second illustration is if you're a king and you're about to go to war, you first sit down and you see if your army's even big enough to win the war. Otherwise, you just surrender from the beginning. Jesus, he's saying, count the cost. 
Count the cost before you commit. Count the cost before you want to be my disciple. But then the chapter ends with Jesus saying this. Look at verse 34. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He talks about salt? Like, really? Salt? That's weird. And at first glance, it's confusing. It seems random, right? But to his audience, they would have been clued in right away. You see, in our world, salt is a common commodity, right? You find it in little paper pouches at fast food chains. I have seven different types of salt in my cupboards at home. I don't even know why I have that much salt, but I do. Because I can, right? First world problems. But in the ancient world, salt, it was a treasured possession, It was so valuable, in fact, that Roman soldiers were often paid their wages in salt. Could you imagine trying to get by with that today? Like payday arrives and you're like, seriously, six bottles of Morton's? What am I going to do with this? This isn't going to work. But the reason salt was so valuable in the ancient world is because it had three main purposes. Salt had the purpose of enhancing flavor. We get that. That's what we use salt for today. But it also preserved food. Think about how critical this would have been. They didn't have refrigerators. Preserving the length of food, keeping food from spoiling for even just a few more days, it could be the difference between life and death for someone. Salt also healed wounds. Again, think about it. They, didn't, they don't have hospitals, the modern technology we have. Salt could literally be the difference between someone's life or death. It was vital. In fact, it was so vital. Salt in the ancient world, it was like a source of life itself. But there was such a thing as salt that had lost its ability to serve its purpose. Salt that could no longer enhance flavor or preserve food or heal wounds. And this was salt that became so diluted, it was so overwhelmed with impurities that it was no longer useful for anything. And that's what Jesus is saying. So it's not even good for the soil or the manure pile. It's just thrown out. In in the Gospel of Matthew, he gives an account of the same teaching that we just looked at in Luke, and he records Jesus saying this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What Jesus is saying here is, hey, if you are my follower, then you are the salt of the earth. Notice he doesn't say uh, one day you will be. You have the potential to become salt of the earth. No, he says you are salt. And what this means is that Christianity, our faith, is not just for our own benefit. My faith is not just so I can get my sins forgiven, so Becky can get her ticket to heaven. No, my faith is actually for the benefit of others as well. And we're going to unpack this idea of purpose even more the whole month of November. But just think for a moment about how like, incredible this is. Think about it. The God of the universe, the creator of all, he invites us in to be a part of the work that he's doing to restore and redeem this world. He doesn't need us. Right? Like sometimes we like to think it like, man, I'm really helping out God with this one. No, he doesn't need me. 
Honestly, my abilities, they're nothing compared to his. He doesn't need me. He wants me. That's pretty cool. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants to give you a life that is full of significance and purpose as we live out this calling we have as salt to enhance and preserve and heal the world, the lives of those around us. I mean, what a cool purpose we get to be a part of. Establish a new priority, embrace a new identity, express a new purpose. Jesus says, hey, this is what it means to follow after me, to be my disciple. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, today could be the day for you. If that's a step you're ready to take, I want to encourage you, after, after the service, come forward in any of our auditoriums. We've got someone on our prayer team who would love to have that conversation with you, to talk with you, to pray with you. If you're watching online, just reach out to one of our chat room hosts. They would love to talk with you, to pray with you. And today can be that day for you. I wholeheartedly believe it'll be the best decision you ever make. But one thing you should know, one thing all of us should know, is that following Jesus, it's a journey. I know these words of his, like they're direct. They seem like straight to the point, black and white. But the reality is Jesus, he's not asking us to be perfect. He's not asking us to have it all together before we start following him. No, he's just asking us to simply be willing to take it one step at a time, one day at a time, be willing to learn from him, to surrender, to have him teach us how to live this out. Jesus, he is such a good, good teacher. He is more patient and, and loving and gracious than we could even begin to imagine. And I can tell you from personal experience, when we truly follow after Jesus, man, it is the most thrilling, joy-filled, life-giving, meaningful journey that we could ever experience in this life. Absolutely, there's ups and downs. Absolutely, there's hard times. But you know what, Jesus, he is steady and he is present through it all. Jesus, he's calling us to follow him and we just have to answer the question, hey, am I willing Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you accomplished on our behalf, and for what that means for us personally. The peace, the freedom, the hope that we can have through you, Lord. God, I pray for everyone who can hear my voice right now that they would spend some time this week really reflecting on what it means to actually follow you. God, I pray that they would do the hard work of examining their heart, examining their own life and their own motives and asking themselves, is, is how I'm living my life as a Christian, does it actually match up with what Jesus asked me to do? And God, I pray for anyone who genuinely wants to make the commitment to follow after you, Lord, that you would give us the courage, the wisdom to know how to live that out each and every single day. We love you, Lord. You are so good. We pray these things in your awesome and mighty name. Amen.